look, but aren't you, aren't you glad you're at women's Bible study now? She's going to the dentist right after that. You know, I think you should have chocolate all in your teeth then. Make sure you get some chocolate before you go. And she's going to the dentist this afternoon. Chocolate, take chocolate. How many of you met someone you didn't know? Look at that. See, we all come in here thinking, oh, look, she knows everybody. Oh, look, she knows. And it kind of can make you feel a little left out. And every, did anybody not meet somebody you don't know? Was there someone that every person you talked to you knew? Good, because you wouldn't have done the rules right. So good. <laughs> See? So maybe you met somebody that's going to be in your group next week. And maybe you learned something more. Maybe you got to know someone better. Maybe you got to know someone better just by looking at which part of the room they went to. Oh, she's saying it might have been mine. I thought she was talking to me. Okay, you want to start us now? Let me start us off now with a word of prayer. Father, I do thank you so much for today. Thank you for the joy of being here. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for your son and we thank you for our, our teacher, who is your Holy Spirit. We open ourselves to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I didn't ask you a question for that last one, that last which is better, because I wanted to save it for when we were all sitting here together. And the question would be, but I don't want you to answer it. I just want you to think about it. Why are we here at Women's Bible Study? Now, there are a lot of, I, I, I don't, it's not meant to be a trick question. That's why I don't want you to answer it. I always hated that in school when somebody asked a trick question, especially if you blurted it out loud and then felt really unintelligent. So I don't want you to answer it. There's a lot of answers you could give, right? Um, I've always wanted to study Hebrews. It's my favorite book. I've never studied Hebrews. I wanted to be with my uh, friends. I want to meet new friends. There's so many reasons why, and they're all good, why we're here at Women's Bible Study. We could say just to study God's Word, whatever it is. I just want to study God's Word. But I want to go a little deeper and ask, why do we study God's Word? Why do we do Bible study? Stay with me here. I want to start with some knots. This isn't changing. Oh, uh, probably because I'm pushing the wrong button. Look at that. Some knots. We don't study God's word to learn more about the Bible. Like there's going to be some great trivia question game when we get to heaven. It's not how it works. You need to know the answer, Jesus, okay? But besides that, that's not, we don't study God's word to amass biblical knowledge into our heads. We do not study God's word so that we obey God. Now some of you are going, heretical, closing your book and leaving. Hear me out. If, if we are studying God's word to be obedient, there's a real caution there because rules over relationship actually breeds legalism. So that is not why I study God's word, okay? I study God's word to know the author because to know him is to love him and to love him is to obey him and to obey him is to live as Jesus did. 
I want us to look at two scriptures here. In 1 John 2, it says, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And then in Jesus' own words, he said in John 14, if you love me, obey my commandments. Looking at these two scriptures together, do you see the progression? To know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to live as Jesus did. So Bible study is not meant to be a checkoff, like you're earning something, even earning God's love or favor. He doesn't love you any more when you do your Bible study than he loves you when you don't do your Bible study. It's an opportunity and a privilege to meet God, to meet the author, to know him better. So constantly every day as I read God's word, I'm looking for what do I learn about God, who he is, what he likes, what he's like, what he doesn't like, to meet God, to know God through his word. Now, how does this work in the book of Hebrews, which is where we're going to be studying? Hebrews is a book of better. Remember our game, which is better. And all the comparisons compare to Jesus. He's the constant. So in eight weeks of study, 13 chapters of Hebrews, we will come to know Jesus better. Now, Jesus is God in the flesh. So as I know Jesus better, I know God better. Let's look at John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Jesus said in John 10, the Father and I are one. And then in John 14, just a little context, Philip has asked Jesus to show them the Father. And this is Jesus's reply. Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? So through these comparisons, all through the book of Hebrews to Jesus, we will get to know Jesus as the better name, the better priest, the better covenant, the better tabernacle, the better sacrifice, the better faith. We will come to know God more, to know God better who he is and what he's like and to know him is to love him is to obey him is to live as Jesus did this is why I study God's word well how do we study God's word first we study it intentionally we study ready not to just complete the assignment not to check it off but to meet God to know him more to know him better individually that's our home preparation that you'll do at home and then corporately, that's what we'll do here together in lecture. And then in our small groups, we'll just keep learning. If you must miss again, I cannot encourage you enough. Listen to the lecture and just keep going through in your book and come back as you can. All right. Your groups will miss you, but come back. Aren't you just so excited to wait for the phone call? Like, I can't wait for that. She's going to call me like on Thursday or Friday and tell me what group I'm in. All right. We also want to study in context. This is so very critical. And by in context, I mean in two ways. I mean within the Bible in its entirety. And I also mean in context involving history, the culture, the setting, the time, the who, what, where, when uh, of Hebrews. 
So considering the book of Hebrews in the context of the whole Bible, how many references do you think are made in just the book of Hebrews to the Old Testament? Somebody give me a number. How many? 50, I heard 50. Come get chocolate at the end. Come get chocolate now if you like need it. I don't care. It doesn't bother me if people get up and walk around. It's higher than 50. 72, you can come get chocolate too whenever you want to. It's 100. Can you believe that? In 13 chapters, a hundred references to the Old Testament. So right here in our own book, we're going to get the context of the whole Bible, okay? Prominent Old Testament people, you're going to hear their names. The religious methods, the sacrifices, the rituals, the covenants, everything we're comparing to Jesus comes from the Old Testament. Now we're going to find, as we go through Hebrews, in chapters 1 through 7, we're going to see that Jesus is better. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses, Aaron, and the priest of Israel. Again, you probably are starting to see some Old Testament references right there. I encourage you, as you read Hebrews in in your Bible study, and you see, if you have a, a study Bible of any kind, and you see the references to the Old Testament, take some time and go back and look and read it in what if it comes from Deuteronomy take some time and go back in Deuteronomy and read that we're going to find that Jesus is superior in who he is in those first few chapters then we're going to move on to chapters 8 through 10 in Hebrews and we're going to see that through Jesus there is a better covenant there is a better sacrifice and that he is the one and only way we can be in right relationship with God and we'll find that Jesus is superior in what he does, did and does. The last few chapters of Hebrews, 11 through 13. In chapter 11, faith is defined for us. And then we get a beautiful long list of examples of people of faith. And those are all going to come from, guess where? The Old Testament. So see how we're rooted in the entire word of God in this book of Hebrews. And the audience that this book was written to would know those people well. And I think you'll recognize many of them as well. Chapter 12 begins with the word, therefore. And it is referring back to chapter 11. Faith and all of those heroes of faith. The great hall of fame of faith. And therefore uh, tells us then to be encouraged. And there's, there's a, an interesting section that comes right after or right really in the middle of his encouragement which is to uh, embrace God's loving discipline it's going to fit right in when we hear it now we're like what be encouraged and then embrace God's loving discipline yeah that's what comes in that in our in our challenge to endure the very first verses of Hebrews begin with God spoke and still speaks, and we'll, we'll come back to that in chapter 12. You're going to hear it come back to say God spoke and still speaks, and our job is to listen and obey. And then the concluding chapter in chapter 13, there's some practical so what, now what. That whole chapter is lined as a matter of fact, I went through and just read chapter 13 looking for so what, now what's the bees. And this is what I found. Just in that last chapter, 
13, be loving, be hospitable, be empathetic and compassionate, be respectful and faithful, be satisfied, be courageous, be prayerful, be grateful, be sure and focused, be about praising and glorifying God, be good and generous, be obedient and be prayerful. And then Hebrews ends with some closing remarks um, from the preacher to the listener. We actually don't have to wait until that last chapter to be applicable with God's word. A challenge for me each time I read God's word is not just to, what am I learning about God, the author, but so what, now what? And I want to back up just a little bit here. Years ago, I was asked to teach how to study God's word. And in hindsight, I read too many books because I really got overwhelmed. I had so many lists in front of me. You know, some of them were in acronyms, at space pets. You know, every time you sit down to God's word, you're supposed to ask these questions. And other authors just had lists of questions. You were, and I, I really was overwhelmed. I thought, Lord Jesus, I can't do this. I cannot present this material and ask these people to do this because I knew I wouldn't. Every time I sit down with God's word, I'm not doing that. So I went to bed that night and I, I really was a little frustrated and God spoke so clearly to me, so what, now what? And I thought, oh, I can do, I can do that. I can do so what, now what? I can remember, so what, now what? And so that is how I read God's word now. So what, now what? So let me show you what I mean by this. I just grabbed this book off of my shelf. It was an accounting textbook I have taught from, oh, don't get this chocolate. <laughs> Let's put it up there. It did not get in the carpet. It was wrapped in full. Okay, so this uh, was the accounting book that I taught him for a semester. Okay? And then this is, oh, I don't want to ring this really loud on the recording. <laughs> this is my Bible. I took it out of the covering case. So this was for a semester accounting. This is God's word for life. So when I look at these two, something really stands out to me. God had to have been really particular with what he put in here. So everything that is in here, so what, now what? Do you understand what I mean by that? A semester for life. Whoever wrote this book, I don't even know. Why got Kiso and Kale? God. Okay? So I want to read this word from God, always asking, so what now? Why did you choose to put this in here? He could have put so much, and for all of life, this is what we've got, okay? That's what I mean by so what, now what? Now I can't walk that way because there's chocolate kisses everywhere. I'm going to step on, look, let's just kick them all over because that would really take away y'all's chocolate kisses. All right. Let's look at 2 Timothy. All scripture is inspired. You see, you hear the so what, now what principle comes straight from God's word. It is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what right, what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Now, how does God's word work exactly? 
from the very book we're going to be studying. Let's look at Hebrews. What does it say in chapter 4? For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Oh my goodness gracious, it sounds a little ominous and frightening when you read that, right? Well, don't stop. Read the next verse. Look what it says, the very next verses. So then, you see it ties. So then, since we have a great high priest, that's Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, just in case we didn't know, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, we just have to stop right here. What adjective do you see that describes God in this one scripture? What, what? Gracious. Miss West, make sure that you get, Rita, make sure you get chocolate before you leave. Gracious, our gracious God, right there, glaring. Oh, Lord Jesus, don't let me miss that. There you are, revealing God to us right there. He is a gracious God. So now we put that scripture together and go, oh, okay, I get this now. His word cuts. I am naked and exposed before the God to whom I give account. And he is a gracious God who wants me to come to him. And there he gives me his grace and mercy when I need it most. Isn't that beautiful? Taken all together. Just, oh, full of hope. So I read his word asking, so what, now what? Why did God include this? How would he like to transform me into the likeness of his son? Is there a different way I'm to be, to think, to speak, or not to be, not to think, not to speak? I want to be open to the spirit as my teacher, John 14. But when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. 1 John 2, 27. You can read that on your own. The reference is on your handout. The Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, is my teacher. That is who is your teacher. As if it could not get, it couldn't get any better, and yet it does. He not only teaches us, he changes us. Isn't that wonderful? Listen to 2 Corinthians 3. But whenever someone comes, when, whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us, who have had that veil removed, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So by studying God's word, I come to know him. As I know him, I love him. As I love him, that's what motivates my obedience to him. And my obedience is what makes me look like Jesus, makes me live as Jesus did. So we will look for practical application all the way through the book of Hebrews. We're not going to wait till the last week, whoever gets to do the last lecture. Is that you? Yeah. We're not going to wait for her to get up here and tell us what, how this whole study could have applied to us. We are going to do it every week as we read God's Word, okay? Now let's talk context involving not just the Old Testament, but the context of history, all right? And we're going to do this by just asking some questions. Who to whom, what, where, when, those kinds of questions. So 
Let's start with who. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Who's the author? Hebrews is placed in the letters in the New Testament. Starting with Romans, we see a pattern. Now, I'm not going to read all these. You can see the pattern, right? The next four letters in line, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, actually all begin with the identical five words. This letter is from Paul. And then we have Hebrews. After all of these, we have Hebrews, which begins, Hebrews 1.1, long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Then the books following Hebrews continue as the letters before. James 1.1, this letter is from James. 1 Peter 1.1, this letter is from Peter, etc., but in Hebrews, the author does not reveal his name anywhere in the entire book. It's not like the other letters. We do not know the author. Now, we do have a hint. There is a hint in that he speaks of Timothy as brother in Hebrews 13, 23. So we know it's not Timothy, but we don't know who it is. Scholars have suggested some possibilities. Paul, Luke, Barnabas, Apollos, Silas, Philip, and Priscilla are all believed that any of those people could have written this book. But the answer is, we don't know, okay? To whom? To whom is Hebrews written? Who is the audience? Again, considering the context of the New Testament letters, there is the distinct pattern that happens in the first few verses of every chapter. I've just chosen four here so you can see a, a difference the, in 1 Timothy, it's written by Paul to an individual. You see that in 1 Timothy 1-2. Ephesians is written to the Christians in a particular city. Philemon is written to three specific individuals who are named, and then the Christians belonging to their house church. Peter writes Christians in five specific provinces, and they're listed there for you in 1 Peter 1-1. I could go on, but you get the point, right? Our book, Hebrews, does not name or list the audience per se, but again, we have some hints. So I want us to look at these script three scriptures in Hebrews and try and, and come up with, if you will, how this audience looked, okay? Hebrews 2, 3. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? Hebrews 3.1, and so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven. Hebrews 5.12, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. How many of you have some form of life application Bible? Raise your hand for me. Okay. I encourage you to read the notes, read the beginning, just read all you can. If you have a life application Bible, there is a, a lot of times at the beginning of the books, they'll talk about to whom, and I want to read you what the Life Application Bible uh, in the summary fact says, to whom written. Hebrew Christians, perhaps second generation Christians, see that comes from 2-3, who may have been considering a return to Judaism, perhaps because of immaturity stemming from a lack of understanding of biblical truths and all believers in Christ. I want to add to that or because of severe persecution, and you're going to see why I say that in a minute. We also know that the audience has already suffered persecution for their faith. We see this in Hebrews 10. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Do you see they have already been through suffering? 
Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. So not only have they in their past experienced severe suffering and persecution, more was coming. Do you feel it? More was coming. In the Life Application Bible, it says these Jewish Christians were probably undergoing fierce persecution socially and physically, both from Jews and from Romans. We're going to talk about that in a minute when we talk about when. In, as you read Hebrews, there are also notes a lot of times to the verses. And if you look at the note to the verse in Hebrews 13, 24 and 25, it says first century Jewish Christians, but it applies to Christians of any age or background. And again, we're going to see this as we read it. In other words, I don't want you, as we get into this and we talk about the when, for you to think, oh, that applied to them. Because it does apply to us today. What? What exactly is this book? Again, it's grouped with the letters, but we've already seen it's not like the letters. It doesn't start like any other letter. It's not written like any other letter. It, ha it, it comes right after the 13 letters of Paul. You get Hebrews. Then you get the letter of James, the letters of Peter, of John, and of Jude, and then his revelation at the end, which isn't necessarily a letter, it's more of a vision, but in that revelation are the seven letters to the church. So Hebrews stands alone and yet is right in the middle of the letters. Why? Well, there is a verse in Hebrews 13, 20, oops, sorry, 13.22. It won't go backwards. There you go. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I've written a letter to you in a few words. So it's like, oh, it is a letter. I just want to tell you that the King James Version is the only version that calls it a letter. So let's look at some other versions. Look at these. NLT, uh, New Living Translation, New King James Version, uh, English Standard Version, New International Version, those are what all of those stand for. And I want you to see, what do you notice? What does everything else call it? I heard it whispered. She's the shy one. Exhortation, you can have chocolate too. Exhortation, every single other one calls it an exhortation. And then most of them make, make reference to, and it's a little exhortation. It's small, it's written, small. Now this word, the same word that's used that the King James says is a letter and everything else says is an exhortation, this word is used one other place in Scripture and it's in Acts, it's in the New Testament. It's in Acts 13, 15. You can look it up later if you'd like, but I'll set the stage for you. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch in Galatia and they've been in the synagogue and they've heard the word of God read. And then this is what's said to them. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers said to Paul and to Barnabas, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please deliver it now. Now, do you see in that context, it's very clear, that's the preaching that happens after the reading of God's word. So it is believed that this is more of a sermon than it is a letter, which is funny because what do our pastors do 
today. The whole, the whole Bible is a sermon, right? But this one is, for real, a sermon. Now, this matters in how you read it, okay? It's a sermon. In Hebrews, A Call to Commitment, that, which is a great book, um, William Lane says, when we read Hebrews, we are exposing ourselves to early Christian preaching that was in writing. The proper way to listen to Hebrews is to recognize that it is an early Christian sermon and to come prepared both for encouragement and warning. And you will see that all through the 13 chapters. You will hear warnings. So I encourage you to actually do this. Hear it for what it was meant to be. Listen to it as a sermon from beginning to end. Now, th we have so many options today to do this. I popped in my earpiece and pulled it up on my phone and left my house so that I would not be distracted by anything else and went for a walk and listened from Hebrews 1 till the last verse of Hebrews 13. It's not that long of a book. It's 13 chapters. For some of you, maybe nighttime is your time and so you're going to wait till everybody goes to bed and you're going to sit and listen to it Hebrews 1 till the end of 13. I if I did that I would fall asleep Lord Jesus I'm sorry I love your word but I would so fall asleep if I did that. So maybe some of you would wake up in the morning before your kids wake up before the house stirs and do it then I don't know some of you are at home alone with no children if we have any mamas that that's not your life now just hang on it does happen. Now for those of you that are at home alone you got so many options. You have just don't even try an excuse, all right? Here's the bottom line. Here's the point. If you want to do it, you will choose to do it, and you will do it, okay? So I encourage you to do it. All right, let's keep going. Where? Let's move on to where. Unlike many of the letters that specifically name places, you realize that, right? Like Corinthians is written to Corinth, Galatians to Galatia, Ephesians to Ephesus, etc. We don't get the that we don't get uh, Hebrews like on the map anywhere. We have a hint again. Look at Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all your leaders and all the believers there. The believers from Italy send you their greetings. Now, many scholars believe that the writer was currently outside of Italy and that his sermon was prepared to a group of people, believers, Jewish believers, in or near Rome. Now, this is going to make more sense as we look at some proof here, okay? We already read the Hebrews 10, 32 through 34 passage, and I know this gets a little bit into the wind, but we have to blur them here so that we can understand better the, the context culturally and in, in time what's happening. The group had accepted the consequences, remember, of their bold faith already. They've already been persecuted, They've already stood their ground. They've already been imprisoned. They've already lost property. Now, the, the descriptions of the sufferings that we read about endured is appropriate to the hardships that the people uh, faced, the Jewish Christians, who were expelled from Rome back during the time of the Emperor, Emperor Claudius, and that was like A.D. 49. We know this experience really happened through Suetonius, who was a Roman writer. He was in the early 2nd century AD, and he, what he did was he prepared biographies of the rulers. So in his biography of Claudius, so this is really, really, really old writing I'm talking about right now, he mentions this incident of social disturbance in Rome. This is what he says. 
There were riots in the Jewish quarter at the instigation of Christus. As a result, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. So Jewish Christians affirmed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And this caused a huge uproar among the other people, the other Jewish people. It broke into uh, riots and the disturbance then caused for police action and Claudi, Claudius banished all of the leaders of the synagogue and the church leaders that he held responsible for the commotion. So the insult, persecution, especially the seizure of property, all are normal under the condition of a decree of expulsion back in that time. That's exactly what it would mean, what we read as the description of what these people have already gone through. The writer then, it's believed, prepared his sermon for some of the Jewish Christians who had shared the expulsion from Rome with Aquila and Priscilla. Now we see this in Acts 18. Look at the end of that verse. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Okay? You see how it's starting to fit together with when did this happen and where was it? The audience of the book of Hebrews had first-hand experience of the cost of discipleship. That's important as we read the book to realize they have already been through it, ladies. Moving on to deeper into the wind, not only have they been through it, it's about to happen again in a really big way. We don't know exactly when, but again, we have some hints. It was probably after A.D. 49, which is what we just talked about, the first expulsion. But it's also believed to be before A.D. 70. Tyndale uh, says this about the date written, probably before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's what happened in A.D. 70. Because the religious sacrifices and ceremonies are referred to in the book, but no mention is made of the temple's destruction. That when the temple was destroyed, it was such a big deal. And remember, these are Jewish Christians he's writing to, that if the temple had already been destroyed, you would see mention of it in the book when they're talking about the sacrifices and everything. So it is believed that the sacrifices are still happening. Okay, so now we have a window. We get a little bit better glimpse. So after AD 49, but probably before AD 70. What had, do we have any history buffs? I should give you the whole, everything that's left on the stage of the non-smush chocolate, if you know this. What, ha what big happened in between AD 49 and AD 70. Anybody in Rome? Oh, it's so hot. Yeah, yeah. The burning of Rome. The burning of Rome happened in that time period. Now, uh, just a little history here. Obviously, you're not like real up on history if you didn't know that was the burning of Rome. Okay, so I'm going to spend a little time here. What time do we have? I'm going to spend some time here. So now it's about 15 years later from that A.D. 49 period we just talked about. So all of these Christians are about 15 years older. And now a new crisis is emerging. And the threat is uh, for a fresh experience of suffering that's even beyond what they've already suffered. Under Claudius, it's more serious now under Nero. So we understand better, like in Hebrews 12, 4, when it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So they haven't been martyred yet, okay? They have not yet faced martyrdom. 
The pastor urges his friends to fix their gaze upon Jesus who endured the cross, scorning its shame so that they will not grow weary and lose heart. Why would he be saying this to them if there wasn't an impending threat? That, by the way, is in Hebrews 12. So the year A.D. 64, when the great fire in Rome happened, you know, it, it, it's kind of like at the beginning of the year, nothing was expected. Is it just like today is September 11th? On January 1st of that year, no one forced, you couldn't even think in your wildest dreams that this would happen on September 11th, right? This is where these people are. The Christian community is gathering in house churches all throughout the city. And everything changes when the fire hits. And this is what happened. The fire broke out in, the, in a really congested area around a place called the Great Circus, is what it was referred to as. It was cluttered with, shot, uh, with shops, and then there was a sprawling slum right around all the shops. Then, then the wind shifted, and the flames went to the adjacent Palatine Hill District. Now, that's where, any of you been to Rome? It's the, oh, isn't it so amazing? So that on Palatine Hill was where all the, uh, the senators' homes were there, and the ruins were there like of uh they described it as monuments of past roman conquest were all there so now the winds have shifted and now that's on fire from there it kept spreading rapidly throughout the whole city after six days it was thought that the fire was under control six days rome is burning but then it broke out again and it raged unchecked for two more weeks so we're talking essentially three weeks of a burning city okay there were 14 districts in Rome only four were not caught on fire okay you see the devastation that's happened and three of those were leveled all the way to the ground now Nero was in charge at the time and he was not even there during the fire he was at his uh, away absent from the city he returned only when his own palace became threatened by the fire now, he did respond to the disaster. He provided emergency accommodations for the homeless. He ordered the reduction of the price of grain that was brought in from neighboring towns. He ordered sacrifices to appease the gods. In the subsequent months, he started an elaborate program of urban renewal. He cleared debris, erected buildings, parks, streets, all at the government expense. But none of these measures won him any uh, made him any popular, no support from the people whatsoever. They were seething with resentment. And the reason why is because the people believed that the emperor had actually ordered the fire. This suspension was nurtured by the persistent rumor that while the city was burning, Nero went onto his stage. He had a stage, a private stage, and he danced and sang while Rome burned. Have you heard this from history? Do you remember this from world history? Yes, okay. So this, this is it fact? We have a saying in marketing that perception is reality. So I don't know what the rumor, if the rumor was true or not, but perception was reality and the people were livid. So it was to silence those rumors. That is why, and to distract attention from himself, that is why Nero ordered the imperial palace guards, the police, to move against the Christians. Listen to what the historian back in that time, Tacitus, wrote. Okay, these are his words verbatim. 
to suppress this rumor, the rumor I just told you about, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians. That comes from the Annals of Rome, 15.44. Okay? What must it have been like to belong to a small house church at a time when the whole resources of imperial Rome were marshaled against the Christians. This is when the catacombs came into being. Do you remember that from world history? So this is when the Christians started going underground to the catacombs to worship, to try to escape from the, this persecution from all the Romans. In the year AD 64, martyrdom became an aspect of the Christian experience in Rome. And I, I can't even, my stomach, I cannot even tell you the things that were done to the Christians. There were several house churches in the city, and the group addressed here in Hebrews had not yet been afflicted by the emperor's actions. But the threat of arrest and death was real, okay? It was real to them. The writer then with genuine compassion reminds his friends of Christ's solidarity with him. Look at Hebrews 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Now, hearing all that, do you understand why this is so important? They're facing death, okay? Read this as though you are facing death and it means so much more. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Do you see? The writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be afraid of dying. Jesus has conquered death. You see, that means a lot more when you understand. I've got goosebumps all over me. Wish you could see them. New and deeper meaning as we read these verses. All right, let's keep going. The writer's concerned that if the Christians are arrested, they might accept the Roman terms for release. And the Roman terms for release were to publicly deny Christ. What we can figure out is happening between reading the verses, which we won't read these two here, but you can make reference if you'd like, is there, there's a tendency to be pulling back, to stop meeting together. Maybe that will save my life if we stop meeting together. Um, so let's keep going. He remembers the author. Re I'm sure he remembers the cost of discipleship that Jesus gave his followers in Mark 8. You can read that on your own. Mark 8, 34 through 38. That's the passage where Jesus tells, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So what does the author do? What does the writer do of Hebrews in his sermon? He gives the strongest encouragement by reminding his friends of the character of the Lord who cares for them. And he displays Jesus in a fresh new way. And he calls him their champion. Wow. That Jesus is their champion. You'll read this in Hebrews 2, 10 through 16. So when standing before a Roman magistrate, which these people will most likely do, the Christians are to fix their eyes on Jesus. Do you hear it? The old part we've memorized probably in years gone by. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's in Hebrews 12, 2 through 4. You'll see a new deep meaning if you'll just read that. Read that today, would you? Everybody write that down. Hebrews 12, 2 through 4. Read that today, understanding who this book was originally written to. Because Jesus suffered, he's able to help those who are called to suffer. Hebrews 2, 18. You're going to see it as you read it now. 
Jesus' own experience of being exposed to death enables him to empathize with our human weakness as these are exposed to death. You're going to read that in Hebrews 4. You see how it just goes through the whole book. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. In moving passage, the writer reminds his friends in Hebrews 5, 7. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Really important. Did Jesus die? Yeah, he did. He absolutely died. So God's answer to Jesus' prayer was not deliverance from suffering and death but resurrection and we see that in hebrews 13 20 and 21 listen to that now what i got three minutes we can do it now may the god of peace who brought up from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood may he equip you with all you need for doing his will May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him, all glory to him forever and ever. The writer leaves his friends with a word from God. God has spoken, I will never leave you and forsake you. That's straight out of Deuteronomy, by the way. He reminds his friends then that the response to that assurance that God will never leave him and forsake him. Look at Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Again, in context of the Old Testament, this is quotes from Deuteronomy and from Psalm put together here in, this one, in these two verses. God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my help helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Wow! To the audience in the time, how powerful it means so much more, doesn't it, when we understand the context, not just from Scripture, but from culture and the time. So in summary, God spoke and speaks. We're going to see this in Hebrews 1, the very first two verses. And our response is to listen now. And you're going to find that all throughout in Hebrews chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and again in chapter 12. We are to respond by how we live. In other words, really listen. Really listen means do it, right? So we're encouraged to do it. And the message of God who speaks is Jesus is better. This is Hebrews. Jesus is better. Compare him to anything, anyone, any place, any time. Jesus is better. So what now what? I want to leave you with this. It's a quote from Hebrews, a call to contentment. And within this quote is where I got the so what now what questions at the bottom of your handout. Okay. What then can we say about Hebrews today? Hebrews is a sermon that is rooted in real life. It addresses men and women like ourselves who discover that they can be penetrated by circumstances over which they have no control. Show of hands, anyone in here experiencing circumstances over which you have little or no control? <laughs> it is a sensitive response to the emotional fragileness that characterizes each one of us. No show of hands, but I'm guessing there are several of us here that might characterize ourselves as emotionally fragile. It th throbs with an awareness of struggle as it explores the dimensions of the cost of discipleship. Hebrews is a pastoral response to the sagging faith of frightened men and women at a time when the imperial capital was striving to regain its composure after, after the devastation of the great fire. It conveys a word from God addressed to the harsh reality of life in an insecure world. Anyone looking around and noticing our insecure world today? 
If you have ever felt yourself overwhelmed by that reality, Hebrews is a sermon you cannot afford to neglect. Remember an hour ago we played a game which is called Which Is Better? And the goal was to get to know one another better. And the bottom line word that God speaks that we are to live our lives hearing is Jesus is better. The last so what now what question on your handout is is there anything or anyone that or who I consider to be better than Jesus? I've written a, a couple of song titles there for further worship, just some songs you can enjoy through the week. Um, there are several of those have options by various writers, put them into whatever you use to listen to. I really like, if you only listen to one, Give Me Jesus. Um, Danny Gokey has a beautiful rendition of that. I look forward to learning with you this fall, not just a Bible study, not just the book of Hebrews, but learning to know God better. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son, far superior to everything and everyone else forever. Thank you that Jesus reflects you perfectly to us even today. I thank you that we can know you more through the gift of your word in the book of Hebrews. We want to know you more. I want to know you more, to love you more, to obey you, and to be more like Jesus in whose superior name.